Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan. I'm Evan Ross Katz, and I am here once again, joined by my producer, Alden Peters. Hello. How's it going? Pretty good. I'm excited for episode five. However, this episode is going to be a little bit different given some news about RuPaul's Drag Race and the contestant Sherry Pie. So we're going to start with a phone call. Evan, can you quickly give our listeners some backstory? Yeah, so we're going to be calling Ben Shipkiss right now. Ben was the first of what's now up to seven people that have come forward to accuse Season 12, RuPaul's Drag Race contestant Sherry Pie of catfishing, soliciting lewd material, and sexual predation. Ben came forward early last week to share his story publicly for the first time. The story has since been covered by BuzzFeed, NBC News, and Entertainment Weekly, but we are going to have the first interview with Ben since then, talking about his experience and getting his reaction to the news that came out on Friday, which was that hours ahead of Sherry's debut on the show, it was announced that she would be disqualified from the competition. And then we are going to jump right into our interview with our episode five guest, Peppermint, where we talk even more about RuPaul's Drag Race. Yep. Before we get into this conversation with Ben, I just want to preface up top, we will be having a conversation about allegations of a predatory sexual nature. So I just want to offer a trigger warning for anyone that does not want to hear this, feel free to zoom ahead and get to the peppermint portion of the episode, which we will notate where that happens in the notes for the show. Okay. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat right now. Can you start by telling people where you are? (laughs) Sure. So uh, currently I am in, I'm on a ship. Uh, We are currently in St. John's um, in Antigua. Amazing. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I want to preface by saying that I understand that you are probably going through a lot in terms of taking a very... um, possibly traumatic situation that happened in your personal life and airing that out publicly and then watching it play out in the public right now and and watching all the repercussions that have come since. So I just want to give some space to the fact that I know this, uh, I don't want to re-traumatize you in any way. Uh, So if anything I ask you about seems uncomfortable or you ever don't want to speak about it, I just want to make sure that you feel that you have complete control over this interview. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Of course. So can you start off by contextualizing what was in your post that ultimately led to 
Sherry Pye, who was a contestant on the current season of RuPaul's Drag Race and has subsequently been fired because you are one of seven people who have so far, and this story is continuing to evolve in real time, but one of seven men, I should specify, that have come forward and accused Sherry of various... Uh, I don't even want to characterize it. I'd rather hand it over to you to sort of help me and other people understand exactly what happened. Sure. Um, so... Of all of the people that have uh, corroborated stories with me, um, we all have described that we created a friendship um, in some way or another with uh, Joey, who is uh, now known as Sherry Pie on Drag Race this season. Um, I worked with him in college. A lot of other people worked with him at regional theaters or in the drag community in New York. Eventually, Joey would reach out to us and ask us to submit different materials for Allison Mossy. A lot of us believed that Allison Mossy was a huge casting director that had a lot of really great connections that was going to start all of our careers. So we were auditioning for either HBO or Playwrights Horizons, which is an off-Broadway theater in New York, or we were auditioning for potentially like feature films and different things like that. And so you begin contacting who you believe is a casting director at Playwrights Horizons. And throughout those back and forths, and, and again, correct me if, I, if I'm misunderstanding this, but this person began requesting videotapes of you with the understanding that this was going to sort of be akin to an audition tape. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And so when did these asks from this person start to present themselves as a, as a little bit of a red flag to you? Um, so there were kind of red flags to begin with. Now, looking back and having retrospect on, on the situation, there were some typos in emails. Um, there was some weird punctuation at times. The original document that I got that, that happened to be the monologue that I had to do a few times, it was just a weird word document, which is not normally what happens for um, shows that are being written. And the final nail in the coffin for me, what really made it obvious to me that it was no longer a viable option for me to continue to speak to Allison, was um, there was a two-day period where our correspondence completely shut off. And at that point, I was debating leaving school and I had been open with Allison that like this opportunity would force me to, to leave school and not graduate from my college. And when the, the two days of our correspondence completely shut off, it was getting really close to the time that I would have had to have made the decision. And I reached out to her again and said, hi, sorry, I really need to hear an answer back from you is, are we continuing? Are we moving forward? And the response that I got back was, I'm sorry, I ran out of internet. There, there, there was no internet at Playwrights Horizons today. At that point, I was like, you are at a premiere theater in New York. I, I didn't understand how that could have been viable. So that's when I completely shut off and then called Playwrights Horizons themselves. And that's at that point that Playwrights Horizons alerted you to the fact that there was no Allison Mossy that worked there or had ever worked there. Correct, yeah. Obviously, this is being called abuse. This is being called sexual predation. There's many terms that I'm seeing flying around right now. At what point would you say 
this crossed over from being just a creepy person pretending to be somebody else on the internet, commonly known as catfishing. At what point do you think it veered into something more insidious? So in my circumstance, I thought that it it was particularly weird um, on a specific email that asked me, how would I feel in my body when it got large and I wasn't able to deal with like body function? It just was so pointed to me in a sexual manner without being upfront about how sexualized that can be. Most casting calls that have any sort of sexual nature to them are open and upfront about it being sexual so that people that feel uncomfortable about what those topics may be don't end up applying to them. And the fact that there was no kind of generalized idea that this was going to turn sexual at any point, that was a big red flag for me. There was definitely a sexually motivated plot to to my story in, in Sherry's sense, but a lot of other men that have come forward have spoken about how Sherry asked them to either masturbate in front of Sherry. A few of them had to take steroids because of Sherry. There are horrible, awful things that have come out. And as difficult as this was for me, my heart is completely broken for all of these other victims that had to deal with this too, because their stories are so, so awful to hear. Understandably. Um, So you go public with this on Facebook earlier this week, and it sort of was a a quick groundswell that the conversation carried over to Reddit and then onto Twitter, and then sort of people within the media, myself included, began sort of um, trying to uncover exactly what had happened before the BuzzFeed story sort of was the first reported piece putting this all together. Hours before the second episode of RuPaul's Drag Race aired last Friday, Drag Race announced that Sherry Pie would no longer be part of the cast of this season. And though she would not be edited out of the season, she would not be included in the live taped finale in the spring. In saying that, the show was admitting that Sherry had actually gotten to the top four on the show, which meant we would be seeing her throughout the entire season. There are going to be people out there, and I'm sure you're conscious of this, who are wondering about the timing of this. And the reason why I want to bring that up with you is because the show and the cast were announced months ago, uh, and you chose to wait until the week, not the premiere week, but the week that Sherry was first appearing on the show. You put this Facebook status up days before that episode was set to air, which would not have given the editors much of an opportunity to take her out of the show if that had been their desire. Um, Can you just sort of clarify or or comment on your thinking with regards to why you said what you said and when you said it? Sure. So this is my second time coming forward. I reported this to authorities. Um, When this happened back in 2015, at the time, I was told that there were no legal actions that I could take because on my end, based off of my story, it was hearsay. There was no corroboration with other people. I did not live in New York City. I did not know other people that were handling this. I was told specifically by the authorities that there was no evidence to prove that it was connected to Sherry. In my school, there was supposedly an investigation that was open. I told one of my professors, who obviously was also a professor of Joey's too. Joey and I both went to Cortland State University, and the professor did not believe me. The fact of the matter is, like, I have waited years knowing that I had this trauma 
And knowing that people, the first time that I had exposed it, did not believe me. In order for me to get to this place that I was able to to release this information, it took me a long time. And when I decided to start writing it, it was the week that Cherry was um, going to be on. It took until the first episode to watch the first episode that I was like, no, I, this voice needs to be heard. And I want other people to know my story. Yeah. Would it be okay with you if I read Sherry's statement on Facebook or would you prefer that I not? Um, you absolutely can. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to read it to you because it's going to precipitate my last question. So Sherry said on Thursday, sure. this is Joey. I want to start by saying how sorry I am that I caused such trauma and pain and how horribly embarrassed and disgusted I am with myself. I know that the pain and hurt that I have caused will never go away. And I know that what I did was wrong and truly cruel. Until being on RuPaul's Drag Race, I never really understood how much my mental health and taking care of things meant. I learned on the show how important loving yourself is, and I don't think I have ever loved myself. I have been seeking help and receiving treatment since coming back to New York City. I truly apologize to everyone I have hurt with my actions. I also want to say how sorry I am to my sisters of season 12 and honestly the whole network and production company. All I can do is change the behavior, and that starts with me doing the work. I want to get both your reaction to her statement and sort of how you're feeling about things now in light of finally having this person come forward with an acknowledgement of their behavior and some sense of ownership and uh, some sense sure. of, uh, of regret and or, I mean, there is an apology in there. The, the apology has been something that I know I've been waiting years for. I now know a lot of other people have been waiting years for. There have been a lot of pieces that have been written about you know, the, the blaming of mental illness on what had happened. I'm no one to speak to, to mental illness specifically, but I do find it kind of difficult to, to say that this entire thing is based off of what place she was in um, in terms of her mental health. But at the very least, it is a step in the right direction and hopefully a step for all of the victims to be able to get into the place where they can finally be at peace with what this story was to them. Right. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to thank you for sharing your story. I want to offer solidarity with you and anyone else in this in this unfortunate situation. And as I think you've articulated, I think we all are hoping that from this, um, our community, both the drag race community and the LGBTQ community writ large, can begin to have some more nuanced conversations about power dynamics, about sexual assault, about the ways in which the Me Too movement affects our community in ways that we perhaps not have not excavated as well as uh, straight people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to encourage anyone who wants to get more information about this story to go online and to read David Mack's reporting for BuzzFeed and also to check out NBC News's piece written by Tim Fitzsimmons. And there are links to those articles in the show notes below. Yes. Again, the story is developing in real time, but it's really important not to get information like this from Twitter or from Reddit and to really go to the news organizations that are doing their due diligence by way of reporting out this story. We ourselves are not a news organization. We are just giving a platform to one of the victims to come forward and tell their story. And now here is our interview with Peppermint. She was the runner-up on the ninth season of RuPaul's Drag Race in 2017. 
A year later in 2018, she made her Broadway debut in the Go-Go's inspired musical, Head Over Heels. New York Times critic Ben Brantley wrote, quote, Peppermint, as might be expected, strikes a pose with aplomb and alacrity. In her role as Pythio, Peppermint became the first trans woman to originate a principal role on Broadway. She has appeared as Euphoria on the groundbreaking FX series Pose and as Pastor Olivia, the leader of an LGBTQ-friendly congregation, on the CBS series God Friended Me. She also made a cameo appearance on Saturday Night Live in 2018. Peppermint is a musician whose first album was released in 2009 titled Hardcore Glamour. Her second album, Black Pepper, was released in 2017. She's currently in the studio working on her third album but has released the first single titled What Are You Looking For? She is a loud, proud, and visible advocate for the transgender community. She is hardworking. She is inspiring. She is my friend. She is Peppermint. Peppermint, thank you so much for agreeing to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So let me start by asking. It's a long resume. Did I leave anything out? No, I think it sounds pretty complete to me. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty prolific, if you ask me. Thank you. I remember back in the day bopping to that first album. Oh like, my I have gosh. been in the, yeah. And I remember seeing you live. Like, I mean, I've been a fan for so oh, long. Heaven. And amongst my circle of friends, I just can count so many Peppermint fans. I feel like there's something about if you've been <laughs> in New York for a little while, like mm-hmm. you and I have, mm-hmm. it's just, uh, you are a legend. And so, so it's 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 such an honor. It's so good to be here with you. So you're from Harrisburg. Uh-huh. Population, I believe, of around 50,000. Mm-hmm. So it's not quite a big city. It's not quite a small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was growing up for you in Harrisburg like? I wasn't raised in Harrisburg, mm. but I spent half my life there. I would go there for holidays and all that stuff. So most of my lens for viewing Harrisburg was through, like, seeing my grandparents and spending summers with my grandparents. So where were you growing up? I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, which ah. is not that far from it. Um, It's near Philadelphia. I love Harrisburg and the Hershey and Carlisle area. And I have a lot of fond memories of going to the commissary and just like really specific things. My grandparents had a strawberry patch and I would pick the strawberries and eat them and get like extremely sick, like get sick off of strawberries. (laughs) But I didn't really come of any certain age in Pennsylvania. So was that back in Delaware? That was in Delaware. So what was that time like for you? I loved it. I mean, it's like, it's not that North, but it's not that Southern. And the area where I grew up is pretty, I think, I mean, when I go back to it now, I'm like, oh God, how could I ever? But it was like right in between Philadelphia, which is like, in my mind, a smaller, like the the more artistic baby sister to New York. And (laughs) Rising Sun, Maryland, which is at one point in the 80s, the Ku Klux Klan capital of the Northeast. Wow. So that's what it was like. (laughs) Wow. Wow. And so what was your relationship like with your family growing up? Oh, my relationship was great. I was always super like show showy and show offy at a really you? early age. I know. Imagine that. <laughs> and so I was always really interested in performing and things like that. And so my family was always really sort of supportive of that, enrolling me in musical theater things and the choir and chorus and art class and playing in the orchestra and in the band and all that. So I did all those things as a kid. And it didn't really start to turn until I like came into my queerness. Then they couldn't just write it off. My swishiness used to just be, oh, you know, you're just creative. It was easy to kind of excuse and not have to like delve too deep in. But then later on, it was like, oh, (laughs) you know, that was a gag for them a little bit. I mean, I feel like for a lot of us, we can relate to this idea of 
our initial queerness being something that we were made to believe was scary because of how we were receiving it from the outside world. Yeah. So I'm curious, also coming up when you did, having less representation in the media, not having an internet to go and Google things. Mm-hmm. How um, dare you call me old? No, I, I'm of the same <laughs> I know, ilk, I know, I know, I know. I just like that reaction. <laughs> so what was that like for you in those moments of sort of feeling that vitriol just for being who you are? Well... I certainly felt it. And for a long time, just like I'm sure many queer folks, I thought it was just me. Like I thought, okay, this is just me and and I have to just deal with this and I'm the only one and oh, it's gonna be a tough life. You know, like that's kind of where I was. And it wasn't until, it honestly probably wasn't until high school. It wasn't until high school where I was able to find any other queer people at all to sort of commiserate with. And even in those moments, we were so different, me and the other the two or three queer kids that I went to high school with. But before that, I remember the one moment that it was like, I thought my mom was like sending me to the wolves was, she was like, you're getting enrolled in something. I don't know why she's trying to enroll me in everything. And she wanted to put me in Boy Scouts. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, I can't do this. I honestly felt like she was killing me. I was like, I can't. I was like, mom, please. I was crying And I was like, I can't do this. I thought I was going to die. And I remember thinking, okay, just get through the first meeting or whatever they're called. And I put on the fucking outfit, (laughs) this little military looking outfit. I I was like in agony. Everything made, I was like, oh, this is everything I'm not. But I was like, put it on. We rode in the car. I was so silent. And of course we were late to the meeting. A, we were the only black people walking in the room. That's the first thing. Second of all, I was the only queer person. I know I was the only queer person or whatever. I was walking in with my fabulous self into the room. My mom was like, okay, go in and I'll pick you up. So she didn't go in. And I went in and literally that entire room full of young little white scouts, it was like a record scratch. Like I didn't even say anything. They were like, Aah! and I was like, I swear to you. I mean, I'm pretty polite. So I didn't like pull some kind of stunt. I must have stayed, but I don't remember anything past that moment. I like emotionally blocked that moment. Then afterwards, I was like, mom, I'm never going back there. I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm not going. So whatever, get your money back or whatever. That was like a very scary moment for me. So that was the first time I'd ever felt like, oh my gosh, this fluffiness that I move through the world with, it doesn't work in this zone. And they're not enthused or charmed by it. And it's just like a target. And when you spoke to your mom afterwards and said, I'm not going back, at that point, did she understand? Did she She did got she it. Say, yeah. We didn't have to commute. We didn't yeah. have to talk about it. I don't think I said it more than once. You know, and it's funny because the, it was almost like a power dynamic had shifted. Like I was begging her not to make me go. She's like, you're going. And then afterwards, I was like, no, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if she saw something in you. She must have seen a visceral change. Yeah, Yeah, there was a shift. I can't send her back. Yeah, I'm sure. Because she never did. And then she found 4-H for me. Because she wanted to have me. She was was determined. And so she got me into 4-H, which for a lot of people is like farming and stuff like that. But they also have like a fashion section. And so I was doing fashion sewing. And I taught dance class and everything. I, I flourished. It was the total opposite. And I was like, this, this is it. I was baking little cherry, like, croquettes and all stuff I would never do today. (laughs) Isn't it remarkable to think about, you know, we talk a lot about finding our tribe, Mm -hmm. but I think even before finding our tribe, it's just 
finding a room, even a vocation, something that takes our interest, that has us realize, because, you know, a lot of us have this feeling that we're the only one, right? Mm -hmm. We contend with that growing up. And as soon as you find that thing, so whether it be a group of friends, but it can also be fashion or sewing or or whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever, what you have you, this sort of makes you realize I have this and I can latch onto this and this will take me through. It will take me through. It could have been anything that was queer or queer adjacent and I would have latched onto it. I guess it was just whatever I could kind of pour my creativity into and my sort of colors into. And that's that's one way that finding, like you said, finding my tribe or finding something that could at least occupy my time and attention and sort of protect me. Yeah. It was great protection, you know? That's very powerful. Yeah. First time that you saw an LGBTQ person in the media, do you remember? Mm, Richard Simmons. And what did that feel like? What was it like to see him and to see that? Being. Yeah. It was great to see someone who was so obviously queer, even though I never heard him say it. Seeing Richard Simmons have his own show and his deal-a-meal and all this old stuff and workout videos and just sort of an empire. No, not sort of an empire, an empire. He characterized himself but no one else could do it. And and there seemed to be a certain, he was in a position of power every single time that he was brought on as a guest or to make a cameo or whatever he was doing. And so that felt good because I was like, okay, this is an adult who's doing this and he's okay. Yeah. And so that was kind of good. And I, again, I don't think I have that much in common with Richard Simmons today, but it was wonderful to see someone be sort of celebrated where on the flip side, just a few years later, after I'd sort of honed in on what it was in the LGBTQIA existence that resonated with me, would, of course, being a trans woman, the only trans women I really saw were, for the most part, on a daily basis with like on talk shows like Jerry Springer and things like that, where they were being beaten by their lovers after professing their love to some, like it was like so bizarre, literally hit by the chair. But the stories of the trans people that I saw were just so limited in, in what, And what the story, it was literally everything leading up to some surgery. And then that's it. It's like the end of their life is the surgery. Yeah. And then we never hear anything else. And that was, um, it wasn't that promising to me because it made it seem like the peak of the mountain was surgery. Yeah. And that's not my goal. As a kid, I wasn't like, I'm dying to get surgery. Like, that's not what I was thinking about. Nobody wants surgery. Yeah. I also think it gave a lot of people the feeling that they had permission to ask people, ask trans people about Mm -hmm. their bodies in a way Mm -hmm. that obviously they shouldn't. And I think it gave people that pass to say, well, I saw so-and-so do it on television. Exactly. Well, Yeah. And that's all they were talking about. Yeah. And that's all they were being uh, interviewed about and asked about. And, And I also think that because folks were so focused on the transition story, like the actual, in their words, quote unquote, male to female transition or female to male transition, which we never talked about. No, we never talked about. And for a lot of people who are earlier in their transition, I can speak for myself, but I've certainly heard other people. When you're first starting down this path, the medical transition is the easiest thing to focus on sometimes. At least for me, it was the thing to focus on in terms of a goal. I need to get this done. I need to put it on my calendar. And so it was something that was kind of almost tangible. Mm-hmm. But the the biggest part of the transition happens internally in your brain and chemically. It's something that you can't chart. You can't, I guess it's hard to describe. And people can't see it. So they can't judge it, which means it doesn't make good TV. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to take a quick break. Mm-hmm. 
If you enjoyed what you just heard, I have some good news for you. There are extended interviews with our talent available on our Patreon at patreon.com backslash shutupevan. For those of you that aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a way for myself, my producer Alden, to make a little bit of coin off of this podcast. That support will allow us to continue to make more episodes. So if you liked what you heard and want to support what we're doing and the continued effort to keep doing it, please consider subscribing to our Patreon today. And we're back. So when did you first come to New York? And did you come from Delaware to New York? I came from Delaware. I was working in a theater, selling theater ticket subscriptions for Opera Delaware with my good friend, James, who went by the drag name Nikea Rashika Thunderpussy, who said, girl, come on, let's go. Let's get a $20, yes, $20 in those days, Peter Pan bus from Wilmington, Delaware to New York City, $20 round trip. And we got on the bus out of drag. We got off the bus in drag. We did our change on the two and a half hour ride. And we felt fierce. We had no, we just had tickets to the city on a bus. We didn't have anything else. We didn't know where we were going. We had no plans. There's all these clubs and restaurants and theater shows. We didn't do any of that. We got in drag and did the host stroll, walked around New York City, even in this neighborhood, every neighborhood. And to this day, I'll be going past and I'm like, that is the place that we we were sitting in. We didn't do anything. We were in New York City walking around for 14 hours. In heels. In heels for 14 hours. I'm sure we took rests and took a, took a moment. Um, but I remember going past Port Authority and there was all these folks lined up, like just standing out on the street, lined against the wall. People that I th- assume were sex workers. and Well, I'm, I can't assume. Like, bitch pulled her titties out and shook them and cars started following her. She was she was selling something. Um, but it was like so surreal. I'd never seen that in my life. Like this like vibrant sexuality and and it was like trans women were running the street down there. I was like, oh my God, these titty girls are out there. That's what we would, we, that's a word we would say back in the day. It's not appropriate now. Are walking out just selling their wares, showing their wares to the people. And then all these cars were parked along the street who you thought were just cars parked, but then the lights would turn on and they would drive to wherever she was. She was just walking down the street. They would follow her. And I was like, whoa, that is some powerful stuff. And so that was my first trip to New York City. It almost reminds me of when you were saying earlier that you're watching The Wizard of Oz, because to me, what you're saying is this moment of the black and white shifts into Technicolor. Yeah, And it's like, you come here all of a sudden, and it's like, you heard about this place, here it is. Mm -hmm. And I love the way you're talking about this, because I think so often people depict sex workers in this way, that it's either against their will or they're down on their luck. And I love that you came in here, you see them, and you're like, they're running shit. They were running. You saw it differently than other people were seeing I totally saw it differently. Now, of course, my only view was as a spectator, just sort of observing what was happening on the street. I'm sure that there's been some really unsavory stories and experiences with probably some of those very same people. But the height at which they were owning their queerness and their sexuality and their financial (laughs) empowerment, it was just something to behold and something that you can't just see anywhere. I mean, I guess if you go to any other place where there's hookers on the street, you'll see them. But it was just something about the mix of families going by at like 8 p.m. on New York City, leaving their Broadway shows, walking past all these trans women as hookers, 
where the father would look, but then they'd have to keep going. It was like some crazy vibe. The middle ground or like the equalizer was the street. They were all mixing and mingling right there on 8th Avenue. And I thought that was so fascinating. I was like, bitch, I'm moving here. And I did. You have a, a song that you did. Is it CLAT or C-L-A-T? It was C-L-A-T, but it it's CLAT okay. because that's what it spells. And, and I so. bring it up because <laughs> like the song, love your verse. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but you say something in the, in the clip, you say. Built legendary status, brick by brick, and it did not come from a YouTube clip. First of all, your verse in that is like really something. I was like looking through the lyrics again today and I'm just like, this bitch can write. <laughs> But I bring that up because it's you were performing in a different New York, right? Oh, my God. A different day so, and age. So for people out there that sort of don't know a drag before Drag Race, mm-hmm. and we're talking the early 2000s, mm-hmm. in New York City. I can take you to the late 90s. Okay, please. No, take <laughs> me there for a moment. Can you sort of paint what that scene was like? There was something about New York City, definitely through the 70s and 80s, definitely into the 90s where many people were coming in droves to the city for its nightlife. And so there's lots of people that wanted to work in nightlife, wanted to be in nightlife, wanted to aspire to nightlife. And there were some people who came with like serious professions in mind, like DJs and promoters. But then there were other people who just desperately needed to be around other creative and queer people. And I was one of them. Coming to New York City was my reason. And then getting to New York City Acting college was my excuse. And so I was in school at 8 a.m. every single day in ballet class and acting class. And then I would gather all the kids and I'd be like, okay, folks, who's coming to the club? Because I got paid $10 a person. I probably got so many kids hooked on all kinds of stuff. (laughs) Come and and do this. And the kids would come. And it was an 18-year-old party. Um, And I... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today worked at the tunnel. We had a yes. party called Curfew. Fucking um, <laughs> And we would all go to the club. And and that was our Friday and Saturday night for mine, Friday and Saturday night for seven years from 1998 until 2005, I think three. No, they, actually five years because they closed. They closed in 2003. Anyway, they closed in the early 2000s. But that entire time I was just getting to know all these people like Amanda Lepore and Mistress Formica and Misunderstood, and Joey Arias, and uh, Mona Foote, and uh, it's too many queens to name. New York City nightlife was just crazy. Like, working at the tunnel every single week, it was, first of all, the, the thing that I loved about it, it was like, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have even cell phones. 
And so we had landlines and pagers. Everybody had a pager. And you would go there and you would get to know these people and you would only get to know what they wanted you to know about them, the name that they gave you, the look that they were serving, the story that they would tell, and that's it. It was enough. And at the end of that night, you'd be like, okay, I will see you next week. And you meant it. And you would see each other every single week for a year or two consecutively. Like that's where you went every single week. And it felt so good. It was certainly community. It was certainly an underground. There was something about the New York City nightlife that only people in New York City nightlife knew that other people wanted and they didn't know how to get into it unless they got into it. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. And so this was just a few years after uh, this whole Michael Alleg murder debacle. Everyone I was working with was there. But when you think of New York City nightlife, if you've heard stories about New York City nightlife, there's two like pinnacles that you've heard about. Either things that happen in or around Studio 54 and things that happened in or around the 90s club life that was driven by the Club Kids and Michael Alec, who was single-handedly, I would say, responsible for driving the word Club Kid and the culture of Club Kid into sort of the lexicon of the United States. Michael allegedly murdered someone, but found guilty of murdering a drug dealer, Angel, not only killing him in a fit of rage, but also then a conspiracy to hack up his body into pieces and throw him in the East River. And for a year, Angel's body was not found. And so Michael and other folks were sort of just business as usual. There was an investigation ongoing. Meanwhile, Michael was continuing to pay the bills and be a visible face in the New York City nightlife scene. And so there was like the, the smoke was still, the ashes, whatever, the something was still doing something. <laughs> Not the ashes. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and so... Um, <laughs> And so there was there was still this um, sort of club kid mentality. Queens were either, you could either perform or you could just get dressed in drag. We called them S&M queens, just stand and model and just do your thing. And so there were so many different kind of ways that you could enter the club world. And I have always been drug and alcohol free. That's just what I chose to do. But I was always having the most fun around everybody that was high off their minds, off of every synthetic drug, you know, stepping over people in all types of K-holes and all kinds of things in the club. People were doing cocaine off of every orifice and every extremity on anybody's body you could imagine, off of penises and off of breasts and off of whatever, off the floor, all kinds of stuff. And it was just like this sense of being so hungry for something that you're going to go out and find it and you're going to go out and get it in New York City nightlife. I don't know if I'm going to like have sex or get killed, but I'm there. And that was the feeling. And I'll find out there. Yeah, I'll find out. And either way, it's going to be fine. Yeah. And that was the feeling. You know, that was honestly the feeling. (laughs) I love that. It's just so fun to reminisce about this nightlife because it wasn't that long ago. Mm -mm. And yet because of the rapid nature with which things have changed, you know, even you mentioned pagers as, and even saying the word pager feels so archaic, but it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. It's just that everything moves so fast now. Mm -hmm. So before we get into RuPaul's Drag Race, let's take a quick break. Okay. And we're back. Yay. So I want to get into Drag Race. I get nervous talking about Drag Race publicly sometimes because I feel like it can be a little bit dodgy in terms of <laughs> not wanting to ruffle anyone's feathers. And, and by ruffle anyone's feathers, I mean, you know, you have the network, you have the production company, you have the PR, you have the other queens. So before we get into it, I just want to ask, mm-hmm. do you feel that way ever? No. I feel pretty confident about talking about it. 
there's certain things that I will and won't talk about in different situations or contexts. But it's usually the questions that are more loaded than the answers, <laughs> generally. So, drag race. Okay. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Oh, no, I'm prepared. <laughs> so, there's been a ton of incredible transgender contestants who mm-hmm. appeared on this show. Mm-hmm. Notably, Sonique, Carmen Carrera, LaShawn Beyond, Monica yes, Beverly yes. Hills, Gia Gunn, Jiggly Caliente, among others. Many others. There's and, a few. Yeah, there's yeah. quite a few. <laughs> and there's many, too, that I've spoken to in several interviews that just don't really identify at all. Mm-hmm. And so I want to give space to them as well. And they, and, and they don't identify and they don't necessarily exclude necessarily, Absolutely. which is great. Yeah. There's also, I want to add, people that don't want to publicly identify as any gender because their own identity, not just their gender, is their private choice to mm-hmm. have for themselves. So holding space for all of that after some comments that RuPaul made during a 2018 interview mm-hmm. notably he said that he would probably not accept a contestant who had medically transitioned his words mm-hmm. you and I spoke in 2018 in the immediate aftermath mm-hmm. how do you feel about all of it looking back now with several years space I feel really thankful that there was at least an opportunity to, to have this conversation It's a conversation that I don't think is going away because we've seen some folks make remarks or gaffes or do things kind of in the heat of passion or wherever they've done them that have actually derailed a project or a show or something. And I'm happy that that hasn't happened because I do think that Drag Race is a really vulnerable tool for folks to get introduced to queer folks and drag entertainment and drag talent, but also for that same drag entertainment and talent to begin to earn some serious money. And so I'm happy that the sort of franchise is, it's an understatement to say staying afloat because now that we're in this year getting ready to see three more different productions on different continents, um, (laughs) it's getting a little um, crowded. But that being said, it's time to turn a page on the story, we can't get around it. We can't finish the story unless we get through this. We can either stay stuck on the page or we can move forward. And I think that other drag television productions, and I could say it, other shows like Dragula have done a really great job of inviting talent who I don't even know, I didn't even know what half of the gender identities were to the contestants on there. And I honestly didn't care. The only time it mattered was when they were speaking about it contextually. You know, then I was like, okay, this person is identifying this way. And so this is what they're saying. And that gives credence to that. I think the future, like Sasha said, the future of drag is all of this queerness. And we have to, we have to acknowledge that. And I don't know how anything can survive without evolving. And so I hope that drag race continues to evolve the way that it has. And I understand that there's certain things that the that the show wants to sort of stay true to. And there's a certain format that they think works. And it obviously does work. But it doesn't necessarily not work if you are more inclusive. And I know that I said this to you back in 2018. And I feel the exact same way. When we measure trans women doing drag, that's what they're talking about excluding. When the only thing that makes a trans woman is her surgery, then we're saying womanhood is only viewed physically by how their body looks. And we're also saying womanhood is bestowed upon a woman when we decide you look the way that we think a woman should look. Then all of a sudden, I decide when you're a woman. And I think that really does 
women a disservice. It does trans people a disservice. It does trans men a disservice and trans masculine people by removing them from the conversation. It does all gay people a disservice. It does humanity a disservice when we judge someone like that by our bodies. And I think there's so many other lessons that we have learned in the past that could teach us this. And so I think we're ignoring the lessons of the past and we're also ignoring where we need to go in the future when we're not being inclusive on shows like Drag Race. And I and I know that I know that there's many people who get it. I've had conversations with them and I know that there's many people who are associated with the show who do get it. And there's some who might not. So I reread the article in preparation for our interview, and there was one sentence- The Guardian article? The Guardian yeah. piece. And there was one sentence in going back that really ruffled my feathers in reading it. You were mentioned by name in the article. Oh, yes, darling. It says, <laughs> Peppermint didn't get breast implants until after she left our show. She was identifying as a woman, but she hadn't really transitioned. That quote is credited to RuPaul. I imagine it can be difficult to hear this person who I know you love and respect and who has given you this giant opportunity also use your identity so flippantly. So how do you contend with these two emotions? I was getting ready to enter into sort of a world and a realm, Broadway, that I hadn't been. I considered myself a guest in and I didn't feel like I had that much. I didn't have a camaraderie yet with with other people not the same thing that I would have had had it been a drag race tour. And so I felt alone and I was coming into this Broadway world and people, the only thing people knew about me was that at that point I had been on RuPaul's Drag Race. And then them hearing in the news that RuPaul was saying this about me and they were supposed to celebrate a trans woman having such an historic moment in their Broadway show. It just felt really icky to me. It didn't feel good. I didn't feel very sort of supported. It hurt, you know, it it did. I had a really beautiful conversation with Rue and Michelle, who can't be taken out of this conversation because in that conversation, Michelle was extremely instrumental in driving home the point to me that my womanhood has always been there. A lot of that was edited out of their podcast that day when we did it on the show, but they were both really supportive and and it seemed like they sort of got it. And so it did feel like sort of the opposite of what had even taken place on camera on the TV show. Okay, can I can I yeah. come in real quick? And this can be a point where you say that you don't want mm-hmm. to include this, but I have to sort of ask. Because this is like one of those moments that happens where you do this interview with Rue and Michelle to really level set. Mm-hmm. And you're here right now telling me that a moment, a really pivotal moment is cut out of the interview. And hearing that, that doesn't, that doesn't compute to me. It's like, here mm-hmm. you are being given this platform to explain, to, no, not even given this platform. Here you are giving them the opportunity to shift the conversation and sort of get it to a place because the fandom had really blown up at this point in support of all of these trans cast members and all prospective trans cast members on the show, which I think is really important in all of this. So for you right now, to, to, to for me to hear that a part of your voice was once again, sort of removed from the conversation, it doesn't sit well hearing that. To the extent that you're comfortable, if at all, do you have any response to that? Well, I don't, I, I, no, not necessarily. The response that I have to that is that the, I don't think that the interview was edited any more than any other part of the show. I don't necessarily have any like specific examples of things that were said that were not included 
a lot of things were truncated and everything. So I, I don't want to paint the picture that they completely like cut all mentions of everything trans out of that interview. It was still, from what I remember watching it, it still came off as a supportive, encouraging kind of thing. And at the end of the day, that's what it was. The conversation was just a lot longer than what they showed. And so I do agree that my connection to the show, my appearance on the show, I won't say, I won't suck my own dick, but I'll say the way in which I choose to speak in public about the show and about gender really gives them some fuel that they could use in a more beneficial way if they wanted to. I've never not been an ally, even when my name was used in that interview. Unlike... Other past, mem- yeah. past members of the show. I think that something else that plays into this, and I'm wondering if this is at all in your mind, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about Drag Race as sort of this ecosystem now, right? Mm-hmm. And there is this thing that exists called All Stars, which is the spinoff of the show. Mm-hmm. And I know that many fans, myself included, want to see you one day on one of the All Star seasons. <laughs> and so I also imagine that there is a need to sort of maintain a sense of graciousness publicly because you want to stay within the ecosystem. Do you feel that way at all? I think that's a choice that people can make, for sure. I think it's a decision that people probably do consider. There are certainly many opportunities, some of them paid, to continue to have a relationship with either the production company or the channel, VH1 logo. Maintaining relationships and not burning bridges is as valuable and useful to the queens who've been on RuPaul's Drag Race just as it is to anyone in any field. Totally. So yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily think about or keep in mind when they're first coming off of the show. Yeah. It's something that I've just kind of always thought about. It's just kind of a part of who I am. I think there's a lot of opportunities for the multi-sectional juggernaut of RuPaul's Drag Race to have better engagement when it comes to the conversation of gender. However they want to engage in that and involve themselves in that, whether it's on the show or post-show or doing interviews or some kind of commercial or whatever, they have the power to do that. And I hope that they will utilize it. So you mentioned earlier this need to turn the page. And so now, two years later, two years after that Guardian Mm -hmm. interview, on 12 Mm -hmm. seasons, 13 new contestants, Mm -hmm. none of them out transgender performers. I think it's important to note that because a lot of people make a lot of assumptions about people's genders just because they've not publicly called themselves transgender. Or even visibly medically transitioned. Right. Look, I'm just going to say, you can be the predictable, judgy fan or queen, (laughs) take your, wear your hat, of drag race and look at the outfit and be like, eh, and like comment on people's bodies and their character and their personality and their persona and whether you think they're trans or not. Oh, she's fierce. and da, da, da. You can do that. That's extremely like one dimensional and vapid. And I engage in it sometimes too. Or you can allow people the space to grow into and become something so much bigger and so much more rewarding and so much more than you've ever thought. And so when we talk about the other performers, I know like the reason why I felt so comfortable discussing my gender identity on Drag Race in season nine was because there were so many people who also talked about in different forums on that season, their gender identity. 
and the fact that they were gender expansive and some folks are non-binary. And I think half the cast of season nine has since come out as non-binary. So what are we doing? (laughs) Right. It's not gentlemen, start your engines. It's not. Right. (laughs) But I do think it's important to note that it's like, there's an assumption that I think a lot of both people and also the media have in these situations to Mm -hmm. characterize this new crop of queens as all being cis men. And I think it's important that when we have conversations like this, we are more thoughtful about sort of like how, not and when I say we, I don't mean that you were. No, uh, we, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah we are more thoughtful about this notion that cis hetero existence is not the baseline. So I think we need to be more thoughtful about sort of like recalibrating what the air quote normal is and just sort of saying, we don't know what anyone is until they tell us what they are. Exactly. So obviously it's important to highlight that we don't know that anyone is out as a trans person. And it's also a shame if someone has identified as trans that the show and the the press around it hasn't put that conversation forward. Not that they need to use it as a tokenize it by any means, but like any mention of transness, they'll have a lot of catching up to do before they get to the mark of tokenizing at this point. Yeah. And so they don't even need to attempt to cast any gender variant people on the show. It's going to happen because that's what happens with humanity. What they need to do is make space to have these conversations in a more thoughtful way on the show and have everyone from backstage to on camera, everyone on camera have better conversations about the trans people who have helped carry the art form of drag into this century. And both on Drag Race, in drag, and in the LGBTQ community writ large. Yeah, at all of it. All of it. And and so, yeah, that's what I think. And it's a difficult thing as a fan of this show. Some of my closest friends are within this show. I love this. I love everything that it's brought about. And mm-hmm. also, I think that I'm sensing a really reductive display of not wanting to move forward. It probably isn't a good feeling as a consumer of any sort of medium or art, TV show, movie, books, whatever, to feel as though you as the reader who is supposed to be led by the story, the story, the show, the movie, the book is supposed to lead you to places that you are not expecting to go and to teach you something. I think it just doesn't feel good to know that collectively or individually as viewers of the show that we have developed tenfold way faster. The show is holding us behind, you know, uh, it doesn't feel, you know, with, with regards to this topic, the show has some development to do. And I think that they're going to do it. I have faith that they'll do it. I hope that they'll do it. I have my fingers crossed that they'll do it in a way that's just like, so like out of this world, we'll be like, what? But meanwhile, we're getting shows like Pose. Meanwhile, we're getting shows, even though there was a little bit of controversy a couple of weeks ago uh, around the new show, Legendary, the Vogue show, Legendary, but- Controversy. A little bit of controversy. Um, <laughs> and now I'm auditioning for film and television and different things. And the conversation is so advanced and so inclusive and so different than what we're talking about on Drag Race. Mm. And I think that that's a shame because Drag Race is the leader and yeah. should continue to be a leader. Also, just want to give a shout out to Janet Mock, who has that overall production deal with Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. That is someone who's really going to be in those high level meetings, dictating what content comes forward, can put trans directors behind the camera, trans writers in the writing room, trans mm-hmm. people 
all around the set to really make sure that inclusivity is not just something that is in front of the camera, but that is holistically a part of the industry. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> on January 23rd, Detox, a finalist on season five and a finalist on the show's second all-star season, tweeted, quote, and to RuPaul's Drag Race, enough with the feigned inclusivity. Time to start putting your money where your mouth is. Hashtag all drag is valid. Work, bitch. Uh, <laughs> I love that moment for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Uh, but the one thing I couldn't help but feel immediately afterwards was Detox is safe in that she's can't be on the show anymore. She's out of the ecosystem of the mm-hmm, show. Mm-hmm. She's been on the all-star circuit and she's not sort of beholden in the ways that a lot of the other queens are. For instance, mm-hmm. when Gia finished her run on All-Stars 3, that's when everything came out and mm-hmm. things really hit the fan. And for anyone that doesn't know, you can Google, I did an interview with Gia Gunn for Out and she did many interviews at the time, sort of making sure that the barn was burning in her exit. Yeah. <laughs> and that was her decision. But I think, I couldn't help but think, you know, and, and this is not to diminish anything Detox said, but it's like, there's less risk there. So I have to wonder, in that moment, when you're seeing tweets like that, was there any part of you that wanted to weigh in on the conversation? I think I retweeted it. Mm-hmm, you did. Um, and I certainly agree. I have a perspective that, like, whatever the structure is that we're trying to dismantle, take your pick. It only dismantles when we are simultaneously chipping away at it from different points. And so from her reach is what she can reach. And we're from where I am, I'll do my work. And we have to do it at the same time. It has to be synchronized, but we'll get it when it happens simultaneously. And so I would like to think that I'm still contributing to that conversation, either directly or indirectly, with conversations like we're having and all the different things that I'm trying to do. What I guess I meant, just just to, to be clear, is not to say that I, I felt like you weren't saying anything. <sighs> Was there any part of you that just like on a base level, it, it wanted to be a little bit more reactive in the moment and sort of less measure? There have been times when I enter the conversation that I feel, I, don't, I might not be right in this, but I feel as though there's a little bit of a different spotlight that people put on me or that people kind of view me. Or any trans woman who gets involved in this conversation. It's just kind of a little bit of a different spotlight. I didn't know, I don't know what else to say. I completely agreed with everything that Detox said about inclusivity. And I, um, but I'm not, I don't have any plans of going on All Stars. They asked me and I said no. And then there was Gia who went on. I was on Broadway. So I want to make that clear. I was asked to go on and I didn't. And so the person they cast was Gia. We might have had a different winner. We might have had different conversations about a lot of things, but it would have been different because we're different people. But I was doing my thing. I was on Broadway. And so I don't want to close the door on anything, mm-hmm. let alone All-Stars. So yeah. I would like to think that whatever contribution, all of the 120, 36, whatever queens of Drag Race have, have made towards the franchise, they'd always have a permanent home with mm-hmm. the brand. And, and so I think that I'm no different, um, but I'm not like... I have so many things in my sights right now, and I'm still the biggest fan of Drag Race. (laughs) To put a pin in the conversation, I just want to ask you, how do you feel like we find a productive way to move forward? One thing that you just mentioned is sort of like in the detox conversation, by chipping away at it from sort of multiple sides and synchronizing those efforts. Um, Mm -hmm. But this show is clearly not prioritizing widening the net of its contestants for the moment. Do you have any suggestion for the fans, many of whom, like myself, might feel conflicted supporting the show in this moment? 
I just assumed, whether right or wrong, probably right, that it was better for me to only focus on or primarily focus on the art of drag, quote, kind of the same way that I would put my head down and just barrel through that fashion class in 4-H just to get the hell through it, you know? And so that's what I did when I went on to the show. And I think that's probably what a lot of contestants do, like, because they know that for many folks, if they're, if you're smart, you know it's a means to an end. And it's not the be-all, end-all of your life. And so get on the show, do what you need to do, get on, get in, and get out. And then get on Broadway, or get on TV, or get on a thing. And then you can t- say anything you want. And so that's that's kind of what my thinking was. No one ever said, this is a great place to have really nuanced conversations on any of this stuff. So I didn't expect it. <laughs> so I think that's the first piece, is that... There's just something about the aura of the show that doesn't lend itself towards being that thing that we want it to be, you know? So a couple last questions before I let you go. So we just got the announcement recently that you'd be dropping this third album. We have mm-hmm. the single out, which is so exciting. I've been so excited <laughs> to have new music from you because I just love listening to your music. I really recommend Peppermint's music for gyms and workouts and for me for my running. <laughs> you just really like get me in the zone. Thank you. <laughs> but so tell me about this new album. It's one album, but it comes in different volumes. So it's a series of EPs which are just basically the different seasons of last year and how they relate and reflect and connect to what I was feeling in terms of love. It's R&B, very reminiscent of late 90s, early 2000s R&B. There's a lot of ballads. This is an album by someone who works as a drag artist, but this is not what people would call drag music by any means. It's for the queer and gender expansive and gender non-conforming and non-binary and trans communities specifically. Not that anyone who's not in those identities can't listen to it, but there's some real, um, the writing is really focused on talking about our existence and our love and how we are loved and how we want to be loved in a really clear way that I've never heard before. I can't wait. I really can't wait. (laughs) Thank you. Talk to me real quick about your relationship with social media. Obviously, social media is a part of your business. Is social media fun for you? No. (laughs) (laughs) I do find myself getting caught in like some kind of rabbit hole every now and again where I'm like, okay, I got to get up and get out. And I'm like, wait a minute. I've been sitting here for 10 minutes looking at scrolling things. And so I'm trying to limit that. But really, I'm making a deal with social media, with whoever happens to encounter me on social media. I'm trying to make an effort to be more open and unfiltered in my offerings of who I am and and my life. But in exchange, I'm not going to engage in anyone else's. That's kind of the the trade-off. And so I will put things out, especially surrounding this new project and this new album. There's a lot of vulnerability and a lot of just very raw moments that take place on this album, the way I talk about it and everything. And so I'm going to be a lot more open with those things in my offerings to social media, but I may not be liking or following who I 
normally would be liking or following or who everyone else is liking and following. So that's and so why, that's what it is. That's why you've dropped off on liking my post. No, ah! I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, catch me on Twitter and I'll get messy. Hello. <laughs> uh, what if you're if you're comfortable talking about it? What goes down in Peppermint's DMs? Uh, you know what? Not enough action. Mm. I mean, I've gotten a couple of like dick pics and a couple of people kicking it to me, but for the most part, and I'm 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 happy for this. I'm thankful for this, and I'm appreciative. The most part is people just showing me their love and saying how much of a, an inspiration, or how telling me their personal stories, whether it's coming out or different struggles and different things. That's who's in my DMs. Now, so, you know, you mentioned two categories for what I'm hearing, dick pics and inspiration. Uh-huh. I wonder, is it ever difficult to have, to sort of like merge those two ideas with a person? Is it ever hard when it comes to dating or even just hookups to have someone see you not as the persona and just as a human being? Is it ever hard to sort of like disassociate from that? I think it's harder for me than mm. it is harder for the whoever the partner would be because in my last relationship and, and just in general, like, you know, the thing that's really unique about me, or at least in my experience or unexpected with me, is that the people who are, who would be interested in dating me, not that there's a line down the thing right now, but the people who have expressed interest in dating me have zero knowledge of or interest in things like RuPaul's Drag Race. And so these are folks that identify as cisgender or heterosexual men, and it's just not their tea. <laughs> and so they're just immune to all this stuff. You know, like they just, I'm just some girl. And I kind of like that, but it is interesting when I have to like explain to them, look, boo, I'm actually on a flight and I'm going to this concert and then I'm doing this thing and whatever. Like to, I ha- I take on the burden of trying to separate those huh. two worlds, but yeah. <laughs> Fair. Um, I want to thank you so much. Before we end things though, I just sort of, I want to make sure that you feel that you were able to fully express yourself in this situation, specifically with regards to the drag race stuff that we spoke of. Do you feel like this was a productive conversation? Do you feel good about it? I absolutely do, yeah. I think it's, it's. I hope it's a conversation like on a larger scale that just continues. I'm thankful for you and the way that you give us an opportunity and a platform to speak and the way that you just get so much of what we're saying and so I want to express that. Okay. But there's a lot of other people that I've talked to about Drag Race who wouldn't have this long or nuanced a conversation about a lot of the things we've talked about. And Can so- I just throw that back at you real quick, though? Because I feel like sometimes I think it's a burden when talking to a person that's been, in a, that's been marginalized in a situation to ask them to sort of, A, relive this, you know, really difficult part of your of your life, you know, as you mentioned, and then to sort of like break it down. And so the fact that you came in here and did it with such an open heart and, and really uh, expressed yourself so wonderfully, I am super appreciative of. Well, yeah. So we both love each other. We both do. That's like, that's, that's <laughs> like that thesis here is we just both fucking love each other. Um, but yeah, it is. I feel good. And I'm going to come back. Oh, good. I'd love <laughs> to have you back. I would fucking love to. Shut up, Evan. I'm Evan Ross Katz. Shut Up Evan is produced and edited by Alden Peters. This podcast is made possible in part by our supporters on Patreon. So we tip our hat to you all. Go to patreon.com backslash shutupevan to get access to bonus content, including extended interviews and bonus clips. And again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for giving a shit about anything that I have to say. 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.